Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This show was pre-recorded on February 15th. Send your comments to news at weru.org. Put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is the second program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about Facebook and democracy. Can they live together? We'll talk about how Facebook has transformed our political life, has it polarized our political identities? Has it become so central to our community and political life? What threats does it pose to democracy, if any? What did the Facebook papers tell us? And it's not just Facebook, is it? What are possible solutions, assuming we have a problem? This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests. Jessica Brandt is the policy director for the Artificial Intelligence and Emerging Technology Initiative at the Brookings Institution and a fellow in the Foreign Policy Program's Center for Security, Strategy, and Technology. Welcome, Jessica. Thanks so much for having me. And Judith Rosenbaum is the associate professor and chair in the Department of Communication and Journalism at the University of Maine. Welcome, Judith. Thank you for having me. Political scientists and analysts and international scholars from the Atlantic to the Stanford Internet Observatory from Harvard and Brookings to the Citizen Lab at, uh, in Toronto, they've all been raising alarms about the role of the social media giants like Facebook in undermining or shaping democracy. We want to explore the issues that these experts are raising and what solutions might be available. So Jessica, let me put it to you first. Does social media present new challenges for civil discourse and a functioning democracy? I think it does, Anne. You know, democracies, I think, sort of fundamentally depend on the idea that the truth is knowable, that citizens can discern it, and that they can use it for the purpose of self-government. So healthy information spaces are essential to the strength of democratic societies. Uh, but, you know, social media is clearly, it's a powerful tool for activists and for human rights advocates the world over. And I think it can bring new vibrancy and points of connection into the public sphere. So in those ways, I think it can strengthen the health of the information environment. But it can also amplify content that's polarizing or misleading, that erodes trust in institutions, you know, creates a sense that the truth isn't knowable at all. Um, so it drives polarization up and trust down. And I think that's a challenge for the health of a democratic society. What do you think, Judith? What threats, if any, does Facebook pose to democracy? It's, it's such an interesting question because I think we could argue that, you know, democracy is always under threat. Like it depends on informed and engaged citizens, right? And I think we can argue that through history, that has been a problem. I think social media has made some of those problems more visible and maybe also more pervasive. So we do see more uncivil discourse on social media. But I think that we tend to have this idea that prior to social media, everybody was communicating with each other in these super dialogue inclusive ways. And we forget that that wasn't the case either. It's just what happens with social media is that Social media brings people together who would have otherwise probably not existed in the same space. So you're now bringing Republicans and Democrats, right wing, left wing people together who would have otherwise never interacted. And on top of that, social media is a space where we show up to perform our identity. Right. So to show the world who we are. And so if somebody else shows up who has an opposing political point of view, 
instead of respectfully disagreeing with them, there's an odd chance that we might use that opportunity to show all of our friends, look at me, look at my political stance, and we're going to voice our opinion a lot more strongly than we might have in a face-to-face setting. So I would argue that social media in general and Facebook in particular magnify current social problems, you know, problems that exist and that are really made worse by social media platforms. Well, so, I mean, isn't that magnification itself, you know, part of part of the problem that it all just seems so much bigger and so much more volatile? Jessica? I mean, I think this plays out along at least maybe three pathways and probably many more. Um, but the first is, I think, what you're pointing to, Anne, which is that recommender algorithms prioritize content that receives a high degree of engagement, and that content is often polarizing. Um, so this obviously puts, I think, you know, a new form of strain on the marketplace of ideas model because the best ideas might not be getting their hearing. And so, if, you know, this dynamic is fueling partisan polarization. It's making it harder for democracies and democratic societies to govern themselves. And then, you know, to the extent that it creates filter bubbles, I think it erodes this common basis for public deliberation. You know, and the second pathway is that companies like Facebook, they make money by selling ads. Um, you know, they enable purchasers um, to micro-target specific categories of users based on the data that the company collects on them. And I think micro-targeting political ads, you know, for example, it makes it possible for different groups of people to operate from very different sets of information. And the issue is that there's very little transparency. So it's hard, you know, for a candidate or a political movement or social movement to refute arguments that it isn't seeing. You know, and then the third is that it opens up this avenue for foreign interference in democratic processes, including but not limited to elections. Um, you know, these activities go far beyond, uh, you know, it's a much broader phenomenon than what takes place on, you know, on platforms, but I think it's a sort of key pathway for foreign actors to exploit. Like bot factories and, you know, manufacturing. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah. I, I think, um, actually, I think we're witnessing a shift away from the use of troll farm content, you know, large quantities of troll farm content designed to polarize um, and sort of towards more targeted information operations that go after specific um, users or categories of users. And I think that sort of evidences um, both, you know, the platforms have gotten increasingly sophisticated in their detection mechanisms. And so, um, you know, the Kremlin, for example, needs to be, uh, take some different approaches in order to evade those detection mechanisms. But it also reflects a fundamental truth about our society, which is we don't need large volumes of troll farm content to um, sort of upend our political discourse. We're doing that already to ourselves. Um, you know, and, and I, I know that that these platforms have been um, a ch- channel for pro-democracy reforms, the Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movements, and and also in in foreign countries. I don't know how much the Arab Spring and others took advantage of these social network connections to to organize. But you know, that's sort of the flip side of the coin: is that we couldn't pull ourselves together quite the way we do without social media. So Judith, go ahead, I see you nodding. Yeah, I mean, I think everything that Jessica said is is absolutely spot on, but it's it's really important to acknowledge the power that social media have given to voices that were otherwise marginalized from the mainstream. You know, prior to social media, we got our information from newspapers that were for-profit from television news that was also for profit and that was mainly run by you know white middle class males and so while i completely agree that you know the social media content it 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 gives us the idea that we're seeing the entire world while it's really a selection of that world and then a very filtered one you know in some cases we're seeing voices that we would have otherwise never heard or seen i mean a movement like black lives matter would never have made it into mainstream media 
without Twitter pushing it. And the same with a movement like Me Too. So, so it's like there's an upside and a downside to social media, right? And we need to be aware of both. And that's why I'm very hesitant to condemn any form of social media as just problematic because the enormous strides forward have been made because of this ability to get voices to be heard and to connect people, right? All these protests happened, both Black Lives Matter and like the January 6th riots happened because people could connect through social media. You know, all that said, though, the, the article just came out the other day about Facebook has a super user problem. And, you know, they were making the case that a very small fraction of highly active users are generating all of this explosive content. And they're almost all angry white males, right? So, um, you, you know, what's the balance here in your view, Jessica? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Judith. Uh, certainly democratic activists you know, around the world have used social media to express dissent and to coordinate protests um, and other forms of civic action. So I think um, you know, those are ways that it um, strengthens the health of our um, democratic societies. I think the question democratic societies face is how to govern these technologies in ways that are supportive of liberal values. And I, I think that's probably a place our conversation will will we'll get. <laughs> yeah, I th we're heading in that direction. Which of you would like to describe the Facebook papers and what we learned about Facebook, or Jessica, what, what was what was in there that was so important for us to know? Sure. I think, you know, on the whole, the Facebook papers largely confirmed what we already knew to be true. But I think, you know, some some takeaways are, that, you know, in 2018, Facebook pivoted its newsfeed algorithm to focus on this meaningful social interactions. Um, and that, you know, company documents showed that Facebook learned pretty quickly that that change led to, um, you know, an increase in, in divisiveness online. Um, I think another major takeaway are that there are huge gaps in, you know, the platform's ability to, to deal with hate speech and misinformation in non-English speaking contexts. Um, if we think the problem is bad here in the United States, it's it's bad elsewhere around the world. Um, and, you know, some of the research uh, on, you know, teens and, and young adult audiences and the way that the platform has tried to sort of grow its foothold um, in that age category uh, and the negative effects that it has on, you know, teens' mental health and well-being. And, and of course, the point was that Facebook knew this and wasn't necessarily taking any steps to mitigate these problems, right? I mean, I think one thing I worry about is that this is, you know, the exposure of internal research um, and, you know, the company, you know, rightly or wrongly, I think in many ways, rightly was dunked on, um, you know, but specifically because it didn't take action on the research um, or much of the research that it collected. I worry that it'll have a chilling effect, not just for Facebook, but for other platforms that'll be hesitant to conduct, to collect the kind oh. of data that could, that could you know, um, that could facilitate this kind of research and to conduct this kind of research itself so that it can, um, you know, and I think this kind of research is essential to informing how platforms govern themselves and then ultimately how we as a society govern these platforms. So that's one sort of one thing that I worry about. Mm -hmm. and it really speaks to the notion of accountability, right? We have a lot of rules and, and court cases pertaining to television content, right? What is deemed acceptable? You know, we have rules about advertisements and things like that, and we have nothing for social media or very little, while we have expectations of them that are equivalent to what we expect of our broadcast media. Um, and, and, you know, I, it just, I, that still boggles the mind to me that we don't have more regulation in place for social media platforms. I know some, and you were talking a minute ago about in foreign countries, Jessica, I know some um, magazine writers and journalists have, 
have been making observations and making the case that Facebook, because of this um, promotion of divisiveness and anger and, um, and the contributions that makes to the disruption of civil society are actually enabling foreign autocrats to um, take and hold power. Is there, does your research so, show any evidence that that's true? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I see it actually as quite the opposite. I think autocrats view information as a weapon to be wielded abroad and as a threat to regime security at home. Um, and that's why they, you know, they rely on the strict control of information to thrive. And they're, you know, in fact, quite brittle to the free flow of information, which is why these, these platforms are banned, for example, in China, um, which has invested heavily in developing, you know, platforms of its own where the party can censor critical content. So I think, you know, the free flow of information supports um, is supports democratic values um, and is, is a threat to autocrats. But you know, when these angry and polarizing messages, hate for immigrants, racial divisiveness, when those things take root in a society, doesn't that then provide an opportunity for autocratic governments to? Again, yeah, and and certainly they do abroad, right? These are themes that that you know um, autocratic governments, uh, in particular Russia, like Russian information operations, um, you know, love to exploit divisions within democratic societies and to amplify the most um, you know partisan and extreme views on both sides of any particular issue, um, and to you know create the notion that the truth is unknowable. Um, so these are certainly you know. Open information environments, I think, create vulnerabilities in the short term for democratic societies that autocrats have identified and actively exploit. Um, but over the long run, they create vulnerabilities for autocrats that I think are fundamentally irreconcilable. Um, and that is why they you know, exercise the strict control over information at home. And so just thinking broadly about how the United States can and other democratic countries can respond to information operations in ways that are concordant with democratic values, I think there's a lot of things that that um, Western and democratic governments, not just Western democratic governments, all democratic governments can do. Um, but one of them is to promote and enhance, um, you know, uh, freedom of information worldwide, not just because it's the right thing to do, um, but because it puts autocrats on the back foot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, if, can I jump in on that? Yeah, then I'm going to take a quick station break, but go ahead, Judith. Okay, I mean, I just wanted to, I mean, I, I, I love what you're saying, Jessica, about how the, the free flow of information is what is so important to democracy. And I would add to that, that we do live in a democracy here. And I think it's really important for people to develop a sense of media literacy or information literacy, if you will. Because if we have an information literate citizenry that knows, oh, what I'm seeing on Facebook is just a selection of reality, that knows where to go to figure out if something they're reading is true or not, that is aware of their own confirmation bias when they're looking for content. You know, at that point, the quote unquote power of Facebook or other social media is diminished because I know that what I see on Facebook is the result of my clicking on L.L. Bean, you know, three minutes ago. Like if I'm aware of that, I can better understand what I'm seeing. So to me, there's some individual responsibility here. I mean, yes, these social media platforms are problematic, but we as individuals play a large role in the meaning, the content we see holds to us and what sense we make of it. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is Facebook and democracy. Can they live together? Our guests this afternoon are Jessica Brandt, 
Policy Director for the Artificial Intelligence and Emerging Technology Initiative at the Brookings Institution and a fellow in the Foreign Policy Program's Center for Security Strategy and Technology. And also with us is Judith Rosenbaum, Associate Professor and Chair, Department of Communication and Journalism at the University of Maine. We're delighted to have you both. This program was pre-recorded on February 15th, so no listener calls are being taken this afternoon. So, I mean, you know what you were saying about a free flow of information and all that, Judith? I mean, that this is one of the, you know, the founding principles, the First Amendment, all that stuff. But the fact is that Facebook has got its thumb on the scale and they're doing it in order to make money, right? Uh, Jessica, can you explain to us how Facebook's profit model works into this whole, their algorithms? And I mean, how do they make money off this? Sure. You know, as I was saying before, platforms make money on, or at least there, I should say there are many types of social media platforms. They have different purposes and different business models. I think what you're pointing to is platforms that make their money on ads and that do so by collecting data on users that enable advertisers to market to specific types of people. Um, you know, and as I said before, I think this ability to micro-target, you know, in particular when it comes to political ads, means that certain people see certain kinds of information and other people see other kinds of information. And that there's very little transparency, um, which makes it hard for a marketplace of ideas, you know, sort of model to hold. Uh, to hold uh, course. I mean, I think I agree with what Judith was just saying about the role of media literacy and individual responsibility. I would, and so I think it's a vital component of, of, you know, sort of how we restore the health of our, and trust in our information environment. I would also say that I think asking individuals to sort of go up against the well-resourced intelligence, you know, apparatuses of, of foreign autocratic governments or, you know, multi you know, companies that are the size of that seems to me to be, so there's certainly a role for individual responsibility, but I think um, there's uh, roles for other actors in, in this system too. And we're going to talk about other roles when we start talking about solutions, but I'm not through digging into the problems yet. So hang with me for a minute more. I mean, they're not all alike, right? Facebook, Google, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok. I mean, they've all, they're all a little different. So, I mean, are there shades of gray here or what? Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, and Judith might want to chime in. I guess I would just say like, yes, every platform is different and has different terms of service that reflect their purpose. You know, so Facebook, for example, it's terms of service require that people go by the name that they use in everyday life, um, you know, which has the advantage of preventing this mis- mis- uh, sort of impersonation and identity manipulation. Where on Twitter, it's perfectly acceptable to use a name that's different from one's own. And that can be an important tool for activists, particularly in closed contexts. Um, so I think, you know, we as a society benefit from, from um, you know, platforms that are designed to do different things and have, you know, operate under different rules. I'm sure Judith has thoughts on this. Yeah, and I want to ask you about um, Neil Young and Spotify too. So go ahead, because that was a different model altogether. Go ahead, Judith. You're on mute. But oh, I think I think Jessica covered it very well. I mean, all these platforms serve different purposes, right? If you want to post a picture of what you had for dinner, you're going to go to Instagram, and on Twitter, you're going to say, "I just had the best, you know, best dinner ever." Hashtag winning or what have you. And so again. If people are aware, what purpose is this platform serving for me right now? Um, what was really interesting to see is Facebook introduced the notion of the reels, which they pull from both Instagram and Facebook, right? And that has really drawn viewers in to where people are now spending a lot more time just scrolling through these reels, you know, which is 
in my case, puppies and horses. I don't know what Facebook things I like, but it's puppies and horses. And so again, I, 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 I'm pointing to that individual responsibility that we need to know, why am I using this platform? When am I using it? What is it doing for me? What is it not doing for me? Um, you know, these social media platforms function as a gatekeeper and to information, but the notion of gatekeeper in itself is not new, right? The term was first introduced in the 50s with newspapers and, and, and the then budding television stations. The difference is that Facebook gives us what they think we want to see, which in my case apparently is puppies and horses. Um, in other people's cases, it might be something extremist politically, who knows? Um, and so that's again like. Yes, there are other actors we need to involve, but as individual media users listening to this broadcast, I would plead for like an increase of your own awareness of what what do you do, where do you do it, how long, you know, are you on Instagram all the time? Why are you doing that? What are you doing? What are you taking away from that? Right. So know thyself. I mean, do you want to comment? I mean, the, this trucker strike in Canada was one example, and I don't know if we have enough data to really know what role social social media played in the January 6th insurrection. But I mean, is there an extent to which, I mean, if if social media can be used for Black Lives Matter and Me Too, can it also be used for insur other kinds of insurrection? Jessica, oh, go ahead, Judith, yeah. I was going to say, you know, social media, first of all, allows people to connect. So it allows you to find people with whom you would have otherwise never, you know, made contact in any other way. And if you consider the fact that social media algorithms give us a view of the world that they think we want to see. So if you are in agreement with the protests in Canada, Facebook or other social media will show you exactly what you believe, which is that everybody agrees with you that, that these protests are necessary. Right. And that the Canadian government is bad for stepping in. And so it re completely reinforces your worldview without introducing any dissonant information. And so you might be more likely to act on your beliefs when you believe that everybody agrees with you. So it's it's the, in, in mass comp theories, we have this theory called spiral of silence, where if nobody echoes your opinion, you're bound to like keep your opinion to yourself. Now we're almost seeing the opposite that because Facebook reflects your opinion, you're inclined to believe everybody agrees with you. And so you're more inclined to act on your beliefs, even if they might actually factually be in the minority. You won't know that because that's not what you're seeing online. You want to comment on that, Jessica? I wish you would. That's a fascinating framing, Judith, the, the sort of the reverse of the spiral of silence. I like that so much. And you, and you asked you know, about um, the Stop the Steal protests, et cetera. You know, uh, and I don't have the numbers at my fingertips, but an astonishing number of people joined um, like the Stop the Steal Facebook group, like like an astonishing number of people per minute or per second, even in those early days, um, you know, and that's because of recommender algorithms that, um, you know, find and target folks. Now, we have a sense that Facebook changed its, the way that it um, sort of its recommender algorithm operates. I think one big issue that we face is that it's not transparent. Um, you know, we don't really have a sense of how these, uh, and I would say that, you know, in more broadly than it operates more broadly than just recommender algorithms, like a group that, um, you know, I was involved with tried to, um, you know, do a sort of audit or an after action on social media policies around, um, you know, uh, the 2020 election and a, and a challenge that we faced is we couldn't figure out when, what policies were in place or when, uh, because sometimes they're not announced at all. Sometimes they're announced by, 
you know, a representative of the company who does an interview with a journalist on a particular topic. You know, so it's very, very challenging to do research to help to sort of understand how these dynamics are playing out. Um, but to the point that these, you know, these these platforms all do different things, you know, like think about WhatsApp, for example, which is, of course, owned by Facebook, but it's an end-to-end encrypted messaging service. So the company generally isn't moderating content that's shared there really at all. I mean, AI does sort of flag child sexual exploitative materials, et cetera. But on the whole, that's not a place where content moderation um, is really happening. And so, you know, I guess there's a lot of conversation about like break up the break up the big platforms. And I would just say there are, you know, Think about the content moderation problems that big platforms have faced. They have small platforms have you know even fewer resources to put towards those problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not quite it's just not quite so simple. Did you, did you watch the Super Bowl at all? Did you see the commercial with the couple where um, one of these devices was reading their minds and how disruptive that was? Um, it, like, how much data do they have on us? Mm. Uh, way more than we want to know i think it's it's well and and it's incredibly my students always get very creeped out when they've been talking about something and then an ad will pop up on their social media and they will tell me my phone is listening and and i'll have to explain your phone isn't actually listening they have systems in place where they can just predict your personality type based on all the information that you've given them because when you think about it most of us put um our entire lives on Facebook or Instagram or even WhatsApp, right? In family conversation groups or whatnot. Um, and it's, it's scary to think. And that's where the lack of transparency that, that Jessica was mentioning, like is completely hit home with me because, you know, when, when we used to just do research on mass media, so newspapers, television, you could go into a newsroom and observe. I have one of my advisors did that, right? Went into a newsroom and observed how does the flow of news work? You could go to a newspaper. You can't do that with Facebook or Instagram or WhatsApp. As a social scientist, I can't access that content. I don't know what's going on. If I want to find out what's going on, I have to do an experiment with faked social media content to see how people respond and then assume that they respond to this fake content the same way they would to actual Facebook content. I can't look at the data that they have. And that, for a platform that is used by billions of people across the world, is is a scary prospect. I mean, Shauna Zuboff and others have been raising alarms about the amount of data that these corporate entities have on us and what they're actually doing with that data. I mean, and I know your um, colleagues at Brookings, Jessica, have been advocating for more transparency. Say a few words about that. Sure. I mean, I would just say privacy, you know, like free expression is a democratic value. Um, and we are out of step with um, with other democracies in that we do not have a comprehensive data privacy law. Now, that's sort of beyond the realm of my expertise, but I but I know that we need one um, and, you know, one that um, sort of sets norms for companies around what kinds of data they can collect, how they can use it um, and obligates them to certain cybersecurity standards if they're going to collect certain kinds of data and and maybe higher standards for those companies that collect, um, you know, personally identifiable you know, specific categories of data that are, um, you know, for example, biometric data, which is immutable. I mean, you're you're um, maybe not the world's expert on this, but you're way more expert than us, Jessica. So tell us a little bit what you know about what other countries have done in this regard. Yeah, well, you know, of course, there's GDPR in Europe. Um, GDPR you know, is, stands uh, for what? 
the general data protection regime, somebody, okay. somebody check me. Um, but, but it's a, it's a broad law that, um, you know, provides um, data protections for citizens in Europe. And, you know, in an interesting way, it's really shaped, you know, the environment globally, how many of, of you, the two of you and, and, you know, various listeners have ever gone to a website that says, this is the information that we collect about you. You know, now there's a pop-up on the bottom of many websites um, that asks you um, to accept all cookies and gives you, you know, a reasonable and sort of um, the decent user experience in mind, like an opportunity to, you know, accept only strictly necessary cookies, for example, right? That's a result of GDPR. And that's the kind of law, um, you know, that we could put in place today. I think, you know, sadly, I don't think that we, again, this is slightly beyond my expertise, but I don't see, I think our political polarization um, has kept us from enacting what I think are sort of, um, common sense laws. What's really interesting about these European laws is they enhance the individual user's agency. So there's there's actually a law, I think that's called the right to be forgotten. So that if there's a mm -hmm. Google a finding on you that you're not happy with, you have the right in Europe to petition Google and ask them to remove that particular search. Like if you ever suffered a bankruptcy, for instance, you have a right to tell Google, I do not want that to come up because it's so many years ago and I have a right to have my past be forgotten. They also have a law about um, artificial intelligence so that if you are interacting with a virtual chatbot in Europe, you have to be told you are talking to a virtual assistant. Whereas here in the US, half the time I'm like, is this a person or is this actually a machine I'm talking to, right? Um, and I was at a conference just last week where they were talking about that. And I, my mind was blown because in Europe, it, that is a thing. And in the US, it's not even, it's not even on our, our agenda at all. Whereas this is the agency that we need, right? This is in line with the media literacy and the information literacy I was talking about a minute ago. And like Jessica was saying, I, I don't know that it'll happen. Well, let's talk about solutions. Uh, do one more quick station break, and then we'll come back to what we can actually do about it. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Jessica Brandt, Policy Director for the Artificial Intelligence and Emerging Technology Initiative at the Brookings Institution, and a fellow in the Foreign Policy Program Center for Security, Strategy, and Technology. And Judith Rosenbaum is with us, Associate Professor and Chair in the Department of Communication and Journalism at the University of Maine. Our topic today is Facebook and democracy. Can they live together? And it's not just Facebook. Um, this show is pre-recorded. Send your comments or questions to news at weru.org. Please put democracy forum in the subject line. So we've talked a little bit about how social media has been a boon to some democratic reforms and also has been, well, I'll say a bust, but, um, you know, how can we get it to serve civil society? I mean, is there a promise that we can keep the good stuff and ditch the dangers? I mean, what could we do to have social media be run in the public interest? And is it possible to do that um, that allows them to continue to be run for profit? Um, Jessica, you go first. Sure. I mean, I'd say the first and most important thing we need to do is increase transparency with trusted researchers so that we can investigate and, and uncover some of the answers to these and other questions. Um, you know, I think uh, the there's a recent um, bill called the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act, which I think would you know be an important step in that direction. And I'm happy to talk about what that bill 
um, contains. But the important point is that, um, you know, while there are, um, I think, reasonable privacy considerations, those can be overcome. Um, and as I said before, like until researchers can understand what policies are in place, um, uh, when and, and um, you know, can conduct, as Judith pointed out, you know, experiments on, on real data, um, it's very difficult to, to get to some of the answers to these questions. You want to comment? I'm going to come back to Jessica and ask about more about the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act. But answer the bigger question first, Judith. What do you think is the hope that we could actually not throw the baby out with the bathwater and kind of keep well? Right. I, it's, it's, I think it's really cool how Jessica speaks to the bigger systemic problems, and I keep coming back to the individual user, right. but. I think that that a lot of our hope lies in the individual user's willingness to be critical, right? I mean, we used to, when I was a kid in school, learn about why these television shows are not realistic, right? They would show an episode of Magnum PI and then have a doctor talk about, yeah, so if that were to really happen, this person would have broken their back and not be able to get up and run. And we need to have that kind of talk with our kids and even with our like adult relatives. You know, not everything you see on social media is the truth. Right. What you see on social media is filtered, just like we have financial literacy classes in school. We should have social media literacy classes in school. We as users need to be aware of who we are. What do you like? OK, well, apparently I like dogs, dogs and horses. So I'm going to see a lot of dogs and horses on Facebook. So, you know, and I know when when we're talking about this in terms of these huge platforms, these enormous capitalist organizations, that seems trite. But I think that individual users have a huge influence. I mean, we make platforms popular and we bring them down. So if we start becoming more critical as a whole, then who knows? In our current polarized society, though, I mean, that that is obviously a huge question, right? Like, do we really want to hear what's out there? Or are we going to unfriend that relatives who has, you know, the unpopular opinions we don't agree with? I've done that. Keep, yeah. And if we keep doing that, you know, then I don't know that that's I, I understand where you're coming from, but it's you know, it, it is problematic, right? No, it's, it's triggering. I can't I just it raises my blood pressure to read that stuff. <laughs> I don't want to see it. But um, yeah. but, so look, I do think like our democracy is only as strong as we make it. Um, and so it's incumbent on each of us um, to instill a healthy respect um, for one another and for our differences and to sort of bring down the temperature and engage the way So I don't. And I don't mean in any way to suggest that there isn't a role for personal and individual responsibility. I just also happen to think that there's a role for our governing institutions and for the platforms right. themselves. Well, I mean, I, I just be more cynical and be like, yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I want to talk about both of those, but, but it, you know, in the idea that you were talking about, Judith, and this is something that, um, you know, we often hear it. Can we just have more civic education? Can we just teach people in school how to be more critical thinkers? Can we have um, media literacy as part of your requirement to graduate from high school? I mean, are any countries actually doing that? Not that I'm aware of. I know in Europe, I mean, Jessica, you probably speak to this, but they had they had a pretty stringent, when I was getting my PhD, they had a, a much bigger focus on media literacy. I've since moved to the U.S., so I'm not 100% aware of what they're doing now. I, Just, I, yeah, I, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, Estonia, for example, is a country that has, you know, sort of faced Russian hybrid activity for a very long time and has developed a pretty sophisticated sort of social understanding um, of how, for example, Kremlin information operations, um, you know, operate. And so I think, you know, that's a it's a it's a society that is sort of mobilized around the threat. And I think. 
Um, there are tons of different um, media literacy um, programs that come from all different sorts of actors. I mean, one thing I would say is, is the government, I'm not saying it's the wrong actor to delete these kinds of, of programs, but I think there's a really vibrant role for civil society here um, to do the kinds of sort of trainings and teachings that you might be talking about. Um, so I think in different countries, and different regions um, and from different actors, we see all sorts of different approaches. I think that's healthy and good. I think we want, you know, sort of democracies and democratic societies to have all kinds of initiatives that are citizen-led, some that are government, you know, government or sort of um, educational infrastructure led. Um, and that like from the interaction of all of these different uh, um, outfits and programs and initiatives, you know, the, the good, the good um, of the sort of public interest will emerge. I think I had heard yeah. for a while that Finland had a great secondary education program in this regard. And I wonder about, you know, whether the proximity to Russia, you know, being those border countries has been an incentive for those. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know specifically about their particular model, but I, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act. What would it do, Jessica? So the idea of the of the bill is to require social media companies to provide vetted independent researchers and the public with access to certain platform data. Um, it would require companies to respond to independent research requests following the approval of the, the researchers' proposals by the National Science Foundation. So it would make the National Science Foundation sort of the clearinghouse um, you know, for, for trusted researchers. Uh, and then researchers would be able to examine the data and, and then release their findings on the platform's impact to the public. And I think this could inform public deliberation about how to govern uh, platforms, for example. Um, and then you know, the idea is that they build in sort of strict protections to guard users' privacy. So things like you know, requiring the encryption of data if the, you know, sort of data crosses networks or requiring individuals, individual researchers to like go to a secure location um, to, to actually use the data and not sort of take the data with them. Things like anonymizing data to protect the privacy of individual users. These are sort of ways that we can soften those tensions between privacy and transparency. Um, in regulating the platforms. I think another important thing is that would shield researchers from liability for scraping publicly available content. So for right now, if you, you know, use automated means to collect even publicly available um, you know, data, um, you, you could be held um, liable under law and this would, this would protect against that. Um, and you know, this one of the sort of I said sticks like um, that the that the law would have is that it creates a section 230 carve out, which so section 230 is um, a part of the Communications Decency Act that shields platforms for liability from um, the content that they host, and this would condition um, sort of 230 liability protections on compliance with um, with this sort of researcher uh, data access regime that the bill would, would create. So in other words, only the companies that actually complied with the transparency measures in the bill would preserve their Section 230 protections. If they didn't Correct. comply, they could be held liable. They could lose their protections. Right, right. I mean, it, um, you know, when you said about scraping, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Cambridge Analytics because they got it you know, uh, they scraped all that data and, you know, used it for nefarious means that did that provoke any reforms or how did that work exactly? I think it was one of the first big cases where the public understood that that um, maybe for the first time in new ways, like the ways that 
um, you know, major social media platforms can be um, uh, post challenges for democracy. And I think also, you know, users understand for the first time just how much data is being collected and the kind of various the range of different bad actors um, that might want to use it into what end. So I think um, it really did bring these kinds of issues into the public eye in a new way. I think, you know, that is even more the case after, you know, recent, um, you know, in the Trump era and, and, and the 2020 election. I think the big challenge that we face is that, you know, there's a lot of consensus around we got to do something and almost no consensus around what, right? Like the political right sees, um, you know, the platforms is taking too heavy-handed a role in um, in performing content moderation that you know, shuts down, in their view, you know, rights to expression. And the left is, you know, criticizes the platforms for not doing enough content moderation, um, you know, to remove despicable content. And so they're just sort of talking, everyone's at a 10, but there's not really a lot of agreement on what to do. But that's why I think, you know, measures like the, you know, measures that bring transparency um, can really be, um, I think, something that we can all agree on um, and something that can shed new light on exactly how, um, you know, how platforms are operating. Do you want to comment, Judith? Yeah, I think having, as a researcher, having a regulated access would be incredibly valuable because most of our lives take place through social media and to not be able to research that in a way that is both accountable, transparent, but real is really problematic. So this particular act by providing a place to do that in an, in an ethically sound way is extremely important, not just for researchers, but for our society as a whole. If we you know, are going to entertain having these things in our lives, we need to know how they work. Right. And, and right now we sort of do and sort of don't. And that's a problem. Does that bill have bipartisan support? Do you know? Uh, it's a good question. I think that its um, main sponsors are Democrats, um, but I'm, I'm actually embarrassed to say I just don't know. That's OK. We'll look it up and post it on our website after the show. OK. Um, so we, we talked a little bit. No, about you know what? It, it has. Um, no, Portman is also, uh, so Coons, Portman, and Klobuchar are the sponsors of the legislation. So it does have bipartisan support. And so some of, we, Klobuchar is a Democrat, and who are the Republicans there? Chris Coons is a Democrat, and um, Amy Klobuchar is a, is a Democrat, and Rob Portman is Republican. Okay, um, good. And they are the three co-sponsors of the bill. Good. Thank you for, for clarifying that. I want to go back on Cambridge Analytics a, a little bit more, because I don't think lots of people know what actually happened there like what did they do what did they get and what did they get away with you go jessica sure uh so third party uh like essentially a third party entity was able to scrape the private data of of um individual users and then market that um you know to political actors who wanted to target ads based on um you know so target ads based on people's sort of characteristics or political leanings. And so, um, you know, it was a case where um, the company failed to prevent the leakage of, of the, you know, sort of personal data that it collects on individual users in violation of its responsibilities to do so. And I think it it's sort of emblematic of the ways that that data can be monetized, including in this case by a sort of unsavory cast of characters, um, you know, that, that, sort of that, that third party cast of characters. So can could that still happen or have steps been taken to prevent that sort of thing from happening now? Yeah, I think the company, you know, that 
activity really, uh, it was a problem for the company. <laughs> um, mm. And I think, you know, they've, they've taken steps to mitigate against that. Good. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Jessica Brandt, Policy Director for the Artificial Intelligence and Emerging Technology Initiative at the Brookings Institution and a fellow in the Foreign Policy Program Center for Security, Strategy, and Technology. Also with us, Judith Rosenbaum, Associate Professor and Chair in the Department of Communication and Journalism at the University of Maine. We're having a great conversation about Facebook and democracy. Can they live together? And what are the challenges? Um, Judith, you, you're not a, probably a constitutional scholar or a First Amendment lawyer or anything like that, but you know, like you've talked a lot about freedom of speech and the marketplace of ideas and stuff. I mean, is are there any limits to what inflammatory information people can or should be able to post on Facebook? Like, you can't call fire in a crowded theater. I mean, is there any, you know, any way that we could say, no, you can't do that? Oh, that's a really tough question. And as you mentioned, so it's a little bit outside of my research portfolio. Yeah, it's okay. Um, so, I mean, I know that in the United States, we have, you know, the Decency Act and people can report things if they don't align with community standards. I imagine that something like that might be useful because what might be acceptable in one community might not be acceptable in another. Um, obviously, that's a really tough question to answer. You know, freedom of speech is the foundation of our constitution. But yeah, you can definitely go too far. That is one question I'm very happy that I don't have to literally implement a policy <laughs> over because it's a tough one. Do you have thoughts on that? I mean, go ahead, Jessica. Sure. I, I guess I'd say this, like some problems are content problems, you know, child sexual exploitative material, that's a content problem. Hate speech, that's a content problem. I guess I'd say we have like a long tradition of thinking about how to handle problematic speech in the sort of in the public domain. And there are some things that we have where some places where we've defined limits, um, you know, to, to rights to expression. And I think those problems are rightly treated as problematic, con oh, sorry, problematic content problems and, and addressed as such. I think though the wide, the vast majority of content that's sort of that that is harmful or problematic uh, and challenging to deal with is, is disinformation. And there, I think that's not properly understood as a content problem, right? I, I don't think we should, I think we should ban the words fake news from our, from our lexicon because I do not think it captures the problem. Um, like the, the, the problem with disinformation is that it's information that's not demonstrably true or false. It's opinion, it's, but it's often polarizing or misleading. Um, and, you know, sort of the problem that we face is sort of like, the misrepresentation of this content or, you know, or its intent or who's behind it, right? So those are behavior problems, not really content problems. Um, and, and I think, you know, to their credit, you know, generally platforms try to, you know, police on behavior and not on content, right? So um, the, the term of art is coordinated in authentic behavior, but when there are signs that, um, you know, that a, that a user or a set of a group of users is, um, you know, violating terms of service. And again, those vary by platform. Um, there are things you can do on Twitter that you can't do on Facebook and vice versa. Um, but they're, they're not taken down because the content is problematic. Um, they're taken down because the behavior is problematic. The behavior violates the terms of service. Talk uh, about that coordinated and what behavior again? Do that again. It's called coordinated and authentic behavior. Um, so, you know, when Facebook, you know, catches a, a set of accounts that are, operating under, you know, um, 
you know, with fake picture, AI generated pictures and, or, you know, they, they say they're a user in, I don't know, you know, what a Togo, but actually they're sitting in, you know, the UAE, um, the, the company can take down those accounts on the, on the basis of their coordinated and authentic, their inauthentic behavior in, in cases where there's multiple accounts coordinated and authentic yep. behavior. And, and that they're not policing on the content of, of, of the speech, right? It's, it's not about what those accounts are saying. It's about what the, what the accounts are doing. Um, and I think that's healthy for, you know, for a democratic society. Like, I think we, we should, I don't want to lose the force for the trees. Like we're trying to preserve, um, you know, like the health and strength of our democracy. And I'd, I'd rather see problematic content left up, um, but rights to privacy and freedom of expression as, you know, seen as integral. Um, I'd rather under police than over police. Um, so I think that's why, you know, it's, it's helpful to distinguish between sort of the harmful content frame, which is what we've seen from the UK, for example, I think is not maybe obscures more than it, like it's mm-hmm. grouping too many different kinds of content together. And so, like I said, I think hate speech can be dealt with as the, 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 the problem is the content. Um, uh, and likewise, you know, like child CSAM, um, right. but child sexual exploitation material, but, but other problems I think we need others. Those are problems we need other solutions. Other solutions, yeah. Um, Judith, I know you've been sort of advocating for a personal responsibility look at this. So let me just pose the big question. How much of the solution do you think, in you know, bottom line, should be directed to regulating the providers and providing more transparency, at least as a baseline? And how much do you think it should be directed to educating the public and how to be more adult in the sphere? Well, it should really go hand in hand, right? We can't have one without the other. I mean, we can make these platforms incredibly responsible, transparent, accountable. If people are still going to be quote unquote couch potatoes, they're not, you know, they're still going to just friend people that they like and watch puppies and horses as opposed to educating themselves. And so then we're going to have this great platform that people are using to waste their time on and, and watch reels on, on silly things. If we just educate the people, but we don't have transparency or accountability in the platforms, then it's also not going to work. We're still going to have a system where people live in these filter bubbles and can't control exactly what they see and when they see it and, and in what format. Um, what, what I found really um, encouraging is that during the pandemic, for instance, Facebook started tagging posts that contained incorrect information about vaccines and COVID-19 as possibly erroneous and sending you to like CDC websites. I thought that was a really great movement. But what you saw is that people started to use code words. So instead of writing out vaccines, they started to use an X or they started to use stars. And they viewed that kind of interference as a sign that, see, there's a conspiracy and y'all are wrong, and I'm the only one who knows the truth. So if we were to just change the platform without educating the people, we're just going to further disengage people and further you know, polarize our society. So I do think that educating people and, and, and you know, making them aware of these are your biases, this is what the other side thinks, this is, you know, these are the various opinions out there, I think that's crucial to resolving this problem. Well, how would you answer that about the balance, Jessica, between, you know, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on who you are, uh, what role you play in our society. If you're, you know, 
if you're an educator um, and, you know, then, then maybe the most important thing you can do is seek resources, um, you know, seek vetted resources and share them with other members of your community. And if you're a lawmaker, I think there are other things that you can do. So I think um, that I think would be, you know, sort of enormously consequential. So, and, and then same thing, if you are, you know, the leadership, uh, you know, executives of a platform, I think thinking early and often about, you know, anticipating the kinds of challenges that, you know, your particular platform might face or sort of the adversarial thinking, um, you know, uh, sort of anticipating how, um, certain measures or policies could have um, effects that are corrosive to democracy and taking action to mitigate against them. I mean, it was interesting, the the measures that Judith just mentioned. I mean, there are others, right? Like Twitter asking you before you retweet an article, have you read it yet? Right. Just that little social nudge. That's, that's, um, I think evidence is the thought about how information sort of spreads across an information environment. The, the evidence, to the extent that I'm aware of it, like shows that that did sort of prompts people to be more thoughtful about what they share. Um, and, but it's, you know, it does so without um, sort of removing particular content, for example, all of which is to say, if you're a designer at a platform or a lawmaker in Congress or an educator in your community, I think you know, sort of the balance will be different. Do either of you think that trust busting or breaking up these giant corporations is part of the answer? I mean, like I said, I think that will pose its own problems. So I don't think it's all that easy. Yeah, I'm. I think we y'all can't see us because we're on radio. But Jessica and I about made the same face. I think, like, <laughs> yes, but I mean, to me, from a profit perspective, if you were to break it up, it it might be better. But now you have smaller companies that are going to be pushing harder to make money because you know they're they're now competing with each other, which might lead to other problems. On the other hand, having almost an oligopoly is just also not productive because if Facebook says no to transparency, then so does Instagram, so does WhatsApp because they're owned by the same company. So yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Well, we're kind of running out of time this afternoon and I uh, promised each of you a few minutes to wrap up the conversation. I'm going to go to you for first, Judith. This is a big topic and one that we haven't seen the end of yet. What would you like our listeners to take away this afternoon? Um, I, you know, it's, it's, as I mentioned at the very start of this conversation is democracy is fragile and it's, it's always been under quote unquote threat, right? It's only as powerful as we are. If we stop investing in it, it's not going to work. And that applies with or without social media. I think social media have magnified the problems that we as a society have. The American society was highly polarized before we had social media. It's just made us more aware of it. And to some extent has made it worse, but to blame a platform for things we as humans do takes away our personal responsibility. We can't just sit here and hold up our hands and go, oh my gosh, the world is you know, coming to an end because of Facebook or what have you. Maybe, but it's also coming to an end if it is because of our action or our inaction. So I think if, if listeners see a problem or agree with some of the problems that we identified, our first step needs to be, okay, what can I do? to make a difference. Maybe I need to refriend that relative whose opinions annoyed me so much. Maybe I need to follow some pages I don't agree with, you know, just so I can quote unquote beat the algorithms. Maybe I need to educate myself on my biases. And that's, and maybe I need to write to my legislators about these are the changes I want to see in, in current legislation, right? But to me, and this is going to sound really Pollyanna, like creating a better world starts with us. And so I think we need to take a look at ourselves very deeply. 
Good, thank you for that. Jessica, take a couple minutes and wrap it up for us. Sure, I would only just say that I agree with Judith that you know our democracy is only as strong as we make it. And as I said before, I think instilling a healthy respect for one another and for our differences is, um, you know, doing so depends on us. Um, I would also say that um, I think the first and most important thing we can do is make transparency the norm, um, particularly when it comes to these platforms, because without a more detailed evidence-based understanding of how uh, our information architecture is shaping our daily lives and our choices, we can't make good decisions um, as a self-governing polity um, about how we want to govern um, technologies that I think we all intuitively understand are shaping our everyday realities. Um, so I hope that listeners will will do both. Um, and thanks again for the opportunity to chat this through with both of you. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, how ironic do you think it is that um, like my town broadcasts their town meeting on Facebook, right? Facebook Live is where people go when they can't go in person. Um, this is like the public square now, right? And in that way, you know, digital technologies are creating new ways for citizens to connect with one another and with their government. So, you know, again, it's it's not all bad. Um, uh, there's much that's good. Um, and to the extent that it can create new channels for civic participation and inform, um, you know, citizens about the way their local governments in particular work, that's a good thing. Um, and so we just we want to preserve that. Great. Thank you both so much for joining our conversation this afternoon. Um, we are kind of running out of time. Um, let me acknowledge who was on today. Again, our guests were Jessica Brandt, the Policy Director for the Artificial Intelligence and Emerging Technology Initiative at the Brookings Institution and a fellow in the Foreign Policy Program Center for Security Strategy and Technology, and Judith Rosenbaum, Associate Professor and Chair in the Department of Communication and Journalism at the University of Maine. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. We stream at weru.org. If you have a comment about this show, send it to news at weru.org ru.org. Please put democracy form in the subject line. The League of Women Voters website is lwvme.org. You can go there for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in our series. You can also subscribe to our podcast at weru.org, and you can email us at downeast at lwvme.org. Uh, thank you all for listening this afternoon. We'll see you here next month. <laughs>